Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. decade of writing about anime man you have no idea oh no i can imagine writing about anime is basically like that's the thing that could make you the most enemies like i think that or writing it, about wrestling it earns you the least sympathy mm-hmm. that much i can say <laughs> it earns you the least amount of sympathy or even believability people have no idea that such a niche thing could pay them and they're right it can't but i did it anyway I got a I, part of I've been thinking about and once again, we're going off topic, but that's the sign of a good, a good guest um, uh, before, before we start the show. Uh, I've been thinking about doing like a bonus series where I, I finally um, watch anime more um, and sort of like give my takes on it as like running commentaries or like short after episode commentaries. And I just like I've never been able to commit to it. So I'm going to cash in my one chip, which is that I get to recommend one anime this entire session. None other. I get to do none other. But I will recommend for you and for anybody uh, a film called Pat Labor 2. Okay. It was the sequel to a a Pat Labor movie based on a TV show. But you don't need to even, you know, who cares? Don't even watch those. Just watch Pat Labor 2. It is the film that Mamoru Oshii did right before he did Ghost in the Shell. Like this film was made in like 1993, I believe. And it is a fascinating, ponderous, kind of boring, but super cool uh, look at kind of Japan's mid-90s cultural anxiety about their role in kind of the changing geopolitical landscape where it's like, yeah, we've got these giant robots, but like the world's kind of depressing now. Like there's terrorism and like, you know, like uh, there's all these, these bubble economies and growths and falls and like everything seems kind of unstable and and then there's giant robots that show up and fight man the aesthetics look exactly like what i'd like I'm yeah dude it. it's it's exactly he took almost all of his crew from that movie to make ghost in the shell like the writer the uh, most of the animation staff like he he was so pleased with how that turned out when he got a bunch of foreign money uh to make ghost in the shell um one of the investors by the way was you too in that film huh. uh <laughs> Nobody ever talks about that, which is weird. There was actually, uh, I think the original theatrical print of the movie ended with a U2 song. Well, I mean, if they paid the money. Yeah, basically. 
I, I would, you know, YouTube can pay me all the money they want. I'll put all their songs in my podcast. It's fine. You have to review the edges solo work. I don't know. Does he even do solo work? <laughs> I mean, he has to. It, maybe it's not released. He calls himself The Edge. He's clearly a pretentious, tw- uh, pretentious twat, so he has to have recorded a, a solo album. I feel like a lot of this needs to be in, so uh, I'm just going to say it, and Julian can figure out the start. Welcome to uh, No Cartridge Audio. My name's Trevor Strong, Kegelbot on Twitter, and today I have with me, uh, well, anime expert, but also uh, video game connoisseur and expert himself, uh, Brian Hansen. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Trevor. Thank you for listening to my pitch, which was, I want to talk about old 80s Japan. And you're yeah. just like... So I'm super interested in this because so my sort of background with old eighties Japan is I um I downloaded an old MAME uh uh emulator Hell, when I was a kid. Yeah. 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 Did you play did you play I'm sorry? No, I didn't play I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it is a early eighties maze game like Pac-Man designed by Sega. And uh the gist of the game is you play a disgraced Japanese politician uh <laughs> collecting bars of gold. And you can punch uh, the enemies that show up. And the enemies that show up include uh, Japanese pro wrestler Giant Baba, who uh, breaks your spine over his knee. Uh, CIA agents. When the CIA agents catch you, they uh, dress you up in bondage gear and whip you. And Michael Jackson, uh, like (laughs) bad era Michael Jackson with the revitiligo or vitiligo, whatever it was, uh, who rips out your spine. Jeez, I would think he would attack you with a knife if it was bad era. That seems like uh, rips out your they're really focused on spines. Well, uh, that was the that was the music video where he smashed up a car, right? Oh, that was uh, that was uh, black and white, black, or black white. and white. Okay, yeah, yeah. I guess it was black and white then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, pretty much the same era. I don't know. I forget if black or white was on bad. No, or black not. or white was uh, that was like that was like his first kind of sign where he was like losing it, and everyone's like, uh, "We're kind of worried about you, Michael." That was a good ending though, where he turns into the panther after smashing all those cars and prowls away. Yeah, that was like 20 minutes long. That was awesome. That's, I remember watching like, that as a kid and being like, this is scary. And then watching it as an adult and being like, this is great. Like, this yeah, is a dude, good it choice. Aired, I, yeah, it was after The Simpsons. I remember it. It was right after a Simpsons episode. And they were just like, yeah, Michael Jackson video. And I watched it. And my very Mormon parents were very concerned <laughs> because he grabbed his crotch about 15 times while Aww. smashing up a car. <laughs> well, just think of how concerned they'd be if they were listening to this podcast. They will never listen to this podcast. I do. I, I guarantee know, I know. you that. <laughs> but I'm sure they're lovely people. Not that you're out. You don't know, like if you. Not that your media outreach needs some some worry. That's not what I'm getting at. My no. point is, my I will make sure my parents never listen to this. Oh goodness, no, no. I I expect that uh, no matter what work I did on my media outreach, it would not reach the uh, the Mormon contingent. Uh, my dad actually left the church. Uh, I know this because oh, okay. uh, I visited I visited uh, Tucson last October um, before I started this job. I was uh, I was unemployed, <clears throat> and so I had some free time before this job ramped up. And so I went home to Tucson, met my dad and my uh, horrendous stepmom. I, I despise, and my dad uh, pulls me aside, and uh, we're we're having dinner at this crappy little pizza place that's in a strip mall, and uh, he's like, Brian, I have some I have some uh, important news, and I'm just like, oh no. He's, this is like medical news or like is this you know like uh we're out of money news like could be any number of bad things and my dad leans over and he's like we're no longer members of the church i'm sorry for raising you in a weird sex cult and uh that's quite it's not really it's not really something you want to hear from your father no i mean the apology's nice um, it, would, it was the, the sentiment was appreciated and immediately I was like oh no no dad you don't understand like 
my childhood was miserable mostly because of you. The, the church was like, that was great. That was a sanctuary. So did you tell him that or? No, of course oh, not. Yeah, God, no. no. I was going to say, that was pretty, that's, that's pretty heartless, but also very honest of you. It's like the radical honesty there. Yeah, one of these days, the nerve's going to come out. <clears throat> the fuse will bust, but. Well, I mean, now, now, but now you, you've lost blaming the church, so uh, you have one less outlet. Well, and what are podcasts for, if not just kind of opening decades-long emotional scars? That's right. Well, that's, 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 that's actually the subtitle on this podcast. Uh, no cartridge audio, video games and aesthetics, and we open up decades-long emotional scars. I'm the Barbara Walters of podcasting. God. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, but no, like I, 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 I got this meme emulator mainly because I was interested in playing Neo Geo games. And so I played a bunch of the, yeah. uh, I played like the, the metal slug games and stuff like that. And, but there were all these weird games that came with it and they were like, they were really strange. Like even to a, you know, like a, like a horned up, like 14 year old who, you know, this was pre sort of like streaming video internet, uh, you know, I had the internet, but streaming video was basically just like a suggestion more than anything. <laughs> like it yeah. wasn't real. Um, what's the what's the timestamp on this? So this is like late nineties, like ninety nine, ninety eight, something uh, like that. Yeah, probably that two thousand maybe. Okay, um, right. yeah. So you could real player was basically the standard for streaming on video. Yes, and uh, and no one used it because uh, it was awful. Uh, but you know, like sort of like it, these days, I'm sure teens are just like finding porn constantly but when you were a kid like and you know you wanted to see some like scandalous stuff it wasn't always out there and these main games would have you know like breakout but it was porn breakout or mahjong girls panic no gals panic excuse me gals panic and it's just like it was it it was really (laughs) it was really strange even to me like you know you'd think like you put this in front of a 13 year old they're gonna be like yeah okay but I, I got to tell you, like, it was still weird. I was like, what, did I look, what is this about? What? And Those, when you said yeah. Japanese video games for that era, I was like, maybe I can have some lights shed on what was going on in that world that would produce this. Well, uh, everyone always kind of... Uh, <clears throat> so I don't know how familiar you, uh, familiar you are with, like, the, the current uh, corporate uh, whatever the fuck is going on with Konami, uh, for example. Only vaguely. Um, I know I probably uh, should be more familiar since I run a podcast about games, but I'm actually not that familiar with it. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to ask a direct uh, direct question. Then do I need to explain what Pachinko is to the audience? (laughs) (laughs) Explain, explain to the audience. I know what Pachinko is, but explain it to the audience, because I mean, honestly, uh, there are a lot of different people listening to this podcast. So there may be people who do not know what Pachinko is. Okay, so Pachinko is basically the only uh, form of legalized gambling in Japan. It is a uh, machine electronic machine and what happens is you pay for uh you know hundreds of tiny little metal uh balls and you load these metal balls into the pachinko machine and then you fling them one by one with some sort of flimsy apparatus into like various holes and traps and try to hit a certain amount of score if you hit the score you get more balls if you don't whatever at the end you trade in the balls for money or you know there's lots of like um like chuck e cheese establishments uh but in with the japanese sense where there's pachinko machines and like you get a little toy you get a little tchotchke if you do well enough yeah i was gonna uh, say very, so it's kind of like popular. chuck e cheese yes but like imagine if you could win actual money and the place is just engorged with cigarette smoke and like people like japanese businessmen in their 50s who haven't seen their wives in three years <laughs> that's pachinko it sounds really good it sounds like a a, a super uh a thoroughly uplifting time. Uh, they're they're very dingy, and they are all over like <clears throat> some of the the back roads in 
like Kyoto and Japan and Tokyo, especially like they're, they're everywhere. Uh, but there is kind of like the, the more fun aspect of it where they try to, you know, class it up. And then in that case, that's the Chuck E. Cheese model where you just get like a toy. Um, <clears throat> but they're very popular. There's a million pachinko video games, uh, millions of them. That's wild. Uh, I mean, is, so like, here's my first question. How, how do those games work? Because I mean, like uh, pachinko in some ways it reminds me sort of like skee ball, right? Where obviously they're different, but like both of them rely upon something of a tactile uh, feel. Like you couldn't really yeah. do skee ball without feeling the bump of the ball and stuff like that. The, a video game skee ball would be not satisfying. I don't think to like you know ninety percent of people who find skee ball satisfying, which is you know not actually that many people. But I can't imagine that. Pachinko is a satisfying in video game form. Uh, would that be right, or is it just like super successful? I, it's super successful, man. I don't know what to tell you. There's there's millions of them. Uh, there's even a, a a character that existed in the in the Famicom in the NES days. Uh, his name is Pachio Kun, and he's just a little <laughs> round pinball man who has arms and legs, and he goes on adventures, and all, they all involve him having to do a lot of pachinko. Um, well, I mean, of course. Yeah, um, that's yeah, Pachinko's way. Very popular, and Pachinko's very popular. And what Konami is currently doing is basically exhuming the corpses of all of the the beloved franchises that they own and just slapping them onto Pachinko machines to make a quick buck. Because that's where they make oh. Konami makes ninety percent of its money on mobile games and Pachinko parlors. Wow! And, uh, so like, really, they don't really like. So when we hear about stuff like with Konami doing, um, you know, like doing Kojima dirty or something like that, like. They were really, tired of spending his money. They, yeah, were, they don't. They don't really care about console gaming. They never did. Like, well, I, that's not true. They, they obviously did. But what happened is they they hit a point where they were just kind of keeping Kojima alive and his his unit alive for the uh, esteem. And I think there was a change in management, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Who was basically just like looking at the books and being like, "What the fuck is this? Shut this down. Like, <laughs> this is a waste of time." <laughs> but but it's Kojima. Like I don't care. He's not making pachinko machines for us. You think Death Stranding is going to make a fucking dollar? You seen that shit? No. Are you way. kidding me? It won't There's, come that's, out. I mean, it'll come out and it'll be $300 million and it'll be like, even then it'll be like five months behind schedule and it's going to have a soundtrack by, by Grimes and uh, Harry Gregson Williams and <laughs> it will sell to 25 people who will adore it and then the general public who will look at it and be like, what the fuck is this? Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, can't wait. I am super excited. But. Oh, I'll play it. I mean, I'll play it the day it comes out. I, uh, yeah. No, I have no qualms. I will buy the the will buy the whatever is needed to enjoy uh, that, that particular game. But I mean, it is it is just so strange that like I guess I just never thought about it because I'm so it is an American thing to be so sort of isolated from the actual like money that these companies make. I never would have thought that Konami would. Uh, have a more profitable arm than video games. Well, I mean, like, basically, if we're being perfectly honest, unless you're one of the major manufacturers, video games, like, profits, like, not particularly uh, stellar, unless you're a mobile game or a free-to-play game, in which case you do fantastic. Um, Oh, yeah, that's the the, uh, Fortnite uh, equation right there. Yeah, basically. Like, PUBG made more money in in God knows how short amount of time than, like, anybody will ever see in their lifetime. (laughs) And that's just kind of the way. And now it's gone. It's over. Who But the player unknown guys should be player known to many people because he's fucking rich as shit. Yeah, I mean, he never has to make another game in his life. No, 
He should he should be the next Notch and buy a candy mansion that's like slightly bigger than Notch's candy mansion, so he can like piss off Notch. <laughs> Please do not tell anyone to be the next Notch. <laughs> it's, it's too dangerous. Well, dark Notch, like the Ur Notch. <laughs> dark Notch. I do dark like that. Notch reverse Notch is actually like super woke and good and and kind. I like I like the idea of reverse Notch also like not living in a candy mansion, but just living in like an exercise mansion. Like there's just like uh, everything is parkour. And we're going to have to table reverse notch. This is just going to be, I'm going to think about him all night. <laughs> well, you know, sorry. I, notch did block me because I asked him if he got lost in his M&Ms. <laughs> Maybe he blocked you because he was and wanted help. Maybe it was a crime. I was trying help. to be honest. Like if he was stuck, like, you know, I would have led a hand. Like it's in the Beverly Hills, which is kind of shitty. But, uh, you know, I know people in mid Wilshire or somebody who can drive over and lend a hand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, it's California. You know some people over there. Everyone knows some people over there. Um, yeah. But so, explain to me. Give me, give me a sense, and give the people uh, listening a sense. So we know what Pachinko is, and sort of certainly paints a kind of a dark picture. Um, what, what is sort of like? So, like, give us a time frame that we're thinking here, and, and describe sort of Japan in in this era for us. Like, paint, paint us a picture. Well, uh, so this is Japan's bubble. What's what's called the bubble economy. <clears throat> Which is that uh, Japan's, so uh, obviously here in the U.S., post-World War II, we had this stunning economic boom because we had all these industries kind of thrumming uh, uh, and like a thriving workforce and all these uh, external factors kind of coalesced and we, we experienced, you know, un- unknown amounts of prosperity uh, despite obvious, you know, social injustice and all that stuff. Um, and the same was, was very much true in Japan as well. Uh, their post-war years were obviously a little bit rocky, but once once everything kind of solidified in the, uh, and not really solidified, but it basically kind of took form in the uh, uh, 60s into the late 70s, uh, going into the 80s when, you know, this was the era of deregulation. So now big companies could come into America and just buy Sony Pictures, or buy, excuse me, Columbia Pictures. <laughs> Columbia Pictures put themselves on the auction block, and Sony was like a Japanese company looking to diverse, uh, diversify their portfolio, and they were just like, yeah, why not just buy a movie studio? What is it, uh, $30 million, $100 million? Who the fuck cares? Let's get it. This Trump change to us, and maybe it'll uh, go into something great. And it didn't really and still isn't, but they have Sony it. Sony Pictures they has, have, what, that one X-Men movie? Do they do the first uh, X-Men movies? Is that... No, that's Fox. Uh, oh, Sony right. has... They have Spider-Man. Okay. That's their thing, which they, they now kind of reluctantly went to, to Disney and Marvel for help with because they made those two fucking shit-tastic uh, uh, Spider-Man movies with what's-his-face, oh, Garfield. Andrew yeah, Garfield. Yeah, yeah. Well, who's the new guy? Oh, uh, uh, Tom Holland. Yeah, Tom Holland, who everyone likes. Yeah, he's a delightful little, little British, uh, little Lord Fauntleroy Spider-Man. All right. So anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> so they so they they um, they're buying up all sorts of things, right? I mean that that's that's sort of a tale as old as time as far as like neoliberalism is concerned. You, yeah. you cut regulation, and someone comes and buys your movie studio, and you make a lot of profit, and then they sort of either speculate on it or sell it or whatever. So that that's what's going on in Japan is, yeah. is raking it in. There's a lot of Japanese companies getting involved in American businesses that they kind of had no business being in. They just wanted to own them. Uh, there's a, an apocryphal story that I heard once, and I don't, I don't know how much of this is, is true, but it certainly was happening. Um, there was a, a Japanese company that apparently bought up uh, excess uh, lumber stock, just 
loads and loads and loads of lump, like by the tons, um, just, just bought it for as cheap as it could get it. And then sold it out and then all of a sudden there was a lumber shortage and they overcharged like you know started charging five ten times what they paid for it and probably made a killing gotta love capitalism and deregulation it always works out for everyone well clearly worked out for them (laughs) i like to imagine that they bought it because they watched like and i mean this is this isn't meant to infantilize them i like to imagine any businessman would do this or businesswoman would do this uh they bought it because they just watched twin peaks and they were so like taken with the idea of having a lumber yard I'm like, well, if Josie could make it work, I don't see why we couldn't. They do love Twin Peaks up there. Is um, that right? Yeah, they do actually. It was one of the uh, the one of the holy grails for a while was like the Japanese uh, Twin Peaks laserdisc set. Ooh, yeah. It was complete uh, before like DVDs and everything like that. Oh, that was a yeah, very before the gold box coveted item. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. But uh, uh, another thing people need to understand, too, is if you if you look back at like uh, American films and, t- and TV of the mid to late 80s, there's a lot of like Japanese panic. Like what was that Michael Keaton movie where he's he's like a, an executive at like a car company and then they get bought by a Japanese, uh, you know, billion dollar company. And like the whole thing is just this very <laughs> creepily racist 80s comedy of them trying to appeal to their new Japanese masters and resenting it. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on. Sounds like a really good movie. <laughs> Sounds like it definitely landed. It aired on Comedy Central a million times in the mid-90s, like to the point where none of that had to been happening for a decade or so. And you're just like, who is this for? <laughs> it's for people who are still super racist. Even then, you know, like that, that movie only probably like fits in because they were trying to be respectful to the Japanese overlords that might have bought their movie studio. Only, you know, they only allowed themselves a few slurs, a few PG rated slurs in 1986 goes a long way i'm sure yeah, exactly so okay so there's a japanese panic we're all worried about uh I, and i remember this when people were like well the japanese are i mean this is still even a, a narrative today like the japanese and the chinese are gonna eat us alive right like it's you yeah. know we're, we have we have nothing compared to them we're just like we you know our kids are all so dumb and you know they're they their kids are brilliant and asian and, and you know inscrutable and we're gonna lose out in this in this coming uh, economic war Right. Uh, And in the midst of that, you had Japan's bubble economy producing a lot of very niche, weird, unique, and uh, strange games just over the course of uh, their their history with that, because um, this was an an era where the most uh, popular computer in Japan wasn't anything that was like anything that was in the Western world, there was no MS-DOS, there was no Commodore 64s. Everyone had proprietary computers made by a Japanese company called NEC. Well, that's that interesting. Yeah, that weren't compatible with, um, uh, with other, other regions. And it was uh, kind of a, a, their own thing. And, and obviously, much like with anywhere else in the world, there was a lot of you know, indie development going on at that time for these machines. And so they're like, there's like this whole kind of sadly lost history um of japanese developers from the the 80s um like you're familiar with stories of like early software uh developers kind of putting uh floppy disks in ziploc bags and taking them to grocery stores right yeah there was exactly that same thing in japan they would go uh put them in a box they would usually hire they would hire some sort of like otaku artist um 
like nerd, you know, geek artist yeah. to draw, you know, like a cute anime girl. And they would put their floppy disk in with a little manual with the cute anime girl and drop it off in like a electronic store, Nakihabra. And, and the same sort of thing. Like they, they maybe made 15, 25 copies of these early games. Wow. Um, that's really they're, cool. They're just kind of lost. I yeah. mean, yeah, it reminds me of those old, like, um, I mean, it reminds me of them, but it's also like, it's not nearly as interesting. Um, or I'm sorry, this isn't as nearly as interesting as that. Where like those old, uh, I forget what they're called, but the, what was it? Doki Doki Panic or. Oh, you want to talk about Doki Doki Panic? Dude, Doki Doki Panic, more than anything else I could ever describe, uh, uh, encapsulates the, the spirit of the, the, the Japanese bubble economy. Okay. Um, Go for it. Uh, so, uh, I actually think I was wrong about Doki Doki. I think it was those those games that were like mysterious that like are in those old NES ads and. No oh right, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not thinking it, but anyway, I'm more interested. Bio in what Force saying. Ape. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, but no. So, uh, in, in case the listeners aren't familiar, the the Super Mario Brothers two that right. we got in America in 1988. That's originally not what super mario brothers 2 was in japan super mario brothers 2 was a very different game it was well not really different it was basically super mario 1.5 <laughs> it was the same tile set pixels everything as super mario brothers except they made it absurdly difficult there's wind there's wind in the game there are mu- the first mushroom the first mushroom you see in super mario brothers 2 in japan AKA the lost levels. I was going to say, is that the lost levels? Yes, it is exactly the lost levels. The first mushroom you you see kills you. It doesn't make you grow big. It kills you. It's the, it's, it's the first dark souls, basically. Japan just made dark souls one, (laughs) but at least dark souls had, yeah, well, dude, I can talk about dark souls again, but I'm pretty sure you want to avoid more dark souls. uh, Well, yeah, actually (laughs) there was, there was one back when the blog was new, uh, I was just writing, um, a friend of mine said, like, they were reading my stuff, and they were like, Trevor, I love your work. Um, never talk about Dark Souls again. Uh, and, of course, I listened to their advice and never did. No, certainly not talking about it now. Right. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> but, I mean, like, that is, a, that is a function of how games were back in the day, and that's what very much what Dark Souls is kind of trying to uh, recontextualize to a modern audience. Yes. No, you're absolutely is right. A lot of these games were intentionally made difficult because... You bought this game for thirty to sixty dollars, and if you are very good at it, you can beat it in twenty minutes or less. Uh, but they are—it is made difficult through bullshit, you know, trial and error, lots of accidental deaths. And Super Mario Brothers Two is the worst example of it. Like it takes it to such an absurd direction. Like there are invisible blocks you have to memorize in your head to complete the game. <laughs> it's bullshit. That's just and fair. Rightfully, right? <laughs> With wind, there's wind and invisible blocks. Fuck you. <laughs> so Doki Doki Panic comes out and is well. So what? so Doki Doki Panic is a separate game entirely. That was uh, that was made by Miyamoto by Shigeru Miyamoto and his his uh, usual like Mario Brothers team. They were they were hired to make this game. Nintendo didn't set out to make this game. They were hired by uh, a Japanese broadcasting company called NHK. NHK is basically like the NBC of Japan. Like they are the biggest broadcaster. They have the biggest hit shows. Everybody knows who they are. They they have the widest reach. They're they're a prestige broadcaster. And so they had uh, their fall uh, 1987 TV lineup coming up. 
And so to promote this TV lineup, they made up these, you know, quirky little anime characters that were like, you know, Arabian Nights themed and, and kind of, you know, uh, colorful and fun. And their whole job was to, they promoted a month of programming in November, I believe it was November of 1987. And then those characters were gone. They were never used again. Uh, wow. <laughs> like it just existed for one month in 1987 to promote uh, their fall lineup. Like That's not even any particular show. And Nintendo made an entire video game with their top talent based around characters that existed for one month. One month in 1987. I mean, that is, that is impressive. Had, they had that much money to burn. They didn't fucking care. It's not like their shows needed more promotion. They were the most successful broadcasting company in the world. They just wanted to fu- just fuck it. Just burn money. Just throw it in the toilet and shoot it with a gun. Who <laughs> fuck cares? <laughs> so, I mean, what is like, so this is basically like a non-scarcity base. Like, obviously there's scarcity, but non-scarcity at the top. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's no, there, there's nothing that, NHK needs. There's no reason that they would hold back. What 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 happened at the time was that there was an alarmingly there uh, Japanese businesses were so uh, gung ho about broad you know uh, being as broad casting as wide a net as possible and diversifying their portfolios and all these things that so many there was so little people who said no. Okay. There was an alarmingly low amount of producers, money people who at any point could have killed any number of really cool things that came out of that time who just didn't care because to them it didn't matter if it was good or bad or weird. It just mattered that it existed. Hmm. Like there's all this anime from the time that was made for Laserdisc and they paid extra money to make the animation extra good because they wanted to sell Laserdiscs because the company that paid money for the animation was a Laserdisc manufacturer, you know? Like, they didn't care if it sold on VHS or whatever. They were just like, oh, well, you know, the, the pristine way to watch this is on our, the Matsushita Laserdisc player. <laughs> like, there were dog food companies that got into publishing NES games in Japan, aka the, the Famicom, the family computer. Yeah. There were dog food companies who were just like, well, maybe we shouldn't be relying on just dog food. What if we, like, what if we release some Famicom games? games? Yeah, like, it was... I mean, you had a bit of that in the in the Atari era. You had you know Chase the Chuck Wagon here in America, but in J- in Japan it stuck. Like it, it, there are entire there are entire brands now that just w- were born out of some bored, you know, uh, CEO of some Japanese company who's just drinking with his coworkers and he sees a Famicom game on TV and he's like, why don't we just do that? And <laughs> they have enough money that they can. The 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 twins the uh, the twin brothers who made Hudson Soft. Uh, if anyone's familiar with Hudson Soft, they Adventure Island. Uh, Adventure Island and Bomberman are, are their two biggest games, I think. Uh, they started out as uh, early 80s uh, hobbyist indie developers. Same deal. They went up to Akihabara with their little baggies of their software. Their little, you know, cute games that they programmed for the Japanese computers at the time. And they were one of the, I believe they were the first third-party licensee for the Famicom in Japan in 1984. That's impressive. They were the first company that was given license to... Um, publish and produce their own Famicom games in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and they just took a wild bet because, like, no Japanese console had succeeded before the Famicom did. Like, they brought the Atari into Japan. It didn't really work. Uh, you know, they brought the Intellivision, the Coleco. Like, all that stuff eventually made it to Japan. It just never, for whatever reason, like, they didn't market it properly. I don't know. They, it just didn't, didn't take off. Didn't I mean, does it have to long. do with, like, the fact that they basically already had something like not like it but but similar to like the the pleasures of it in the pachinko parlor i mean did that did that hurt japanese arcades like never uh, never d- 
died the same way that they did in America. Japanese arcades have have long since been uh, uh, like j- these palaces, you know, hmm. <laughs> compared yeah. to everywhere else. Like they're they're still they still ring, bring in guests, so they still make money. Um, that's where that's where Sega Japan, I believe, makes most of their uh, income is through like their theme parks and their um, little like arcade division where they have like you know little game centers strewn about uh, parts of Japan. Like that's where Sega and makes most of its money now, and where they made most of their money in the eighties. So I mean, let me ask a stupid question: Is this like is this just a, a representative example of how a particular culture, in this case Japan? just likes things that are different than American culture? I mean, how much of this has to do with sort of like the excesses of uh, of a sort of like high watermark of an economic moment? And how much of it is just like Japanese people just like stuff that's different than the stuff we like? I, I think it very much is a cultural difference. And I, I think this actually can can be boiled down to, um, at, its, at its purest form, uh, uh, Osamu Tezuka. Okay. Um, uh, people who don't know who Osamu Tezuka is, he's a legendary, you know, comic book artist, manga artist, animator, you know, made Astro Boy. Um, and the way that Osamu Tezuka started was he was, you know, living through the post-war Japan era, and he was interested in drawing because he saw Disney films. But he could only see them once in, like, the little, you know, little ramshackle theater that would screen them. Um, and they would come in frequently uh, through Japan. So he would kind of do his best to approximate the drawings that he saw in his head from, you know, however many months or weeks had passed that he saw it. Mm-hmm. And the result is basically how he drew his characters. Right. You know? Okay. Um, and everyone copied him because he was the first one to make a go at it that was super successful. You know, like his, his manga was read by millions of people. And uh, people kind of copied what he was doing, and, and it just kind of spread from there. I mean, obviously, this is a gross oversimplification. There's other contemporaneous artists along with Tezuka who kind of contributed to uh, it. Tezuka's sort of like a – I mean, he's a, he's a Walt Disney um, corollary for anime. I mean, yeah. this, is like, this is like the first in a lot of ways. Or like a, yeah, or like I, a Will Eisner corollary for comics. I mean, however you want to think about it, he's the, he, or American comics, rather. But he's like the first. He's like a very serious yeah. figure. And what, Osama, and what Tezuka did that, that others couldn't was he made it – normal to read his comics normal mm-hmm. japanese people read his comics on the train they read them you know they, they looked forward to them they bought them uh, uh and everyone you know they would always make kind of hayseed about the fact that like oh you go to japan and there's just people reading comic books on the dang trains and it's like <laughs> well well yeah because like it's been normal for them for 50 years like nobody cares you know right, exactly and I mean, like uh, that, that it's Astro Boy, too, is interesting because, of course, like the, the major uh, characters that became popular here, I mean, obviously superheroes, but like before superheroes and also contemporaneous to superheroes and sort of always outlasting them in a certain way were like funny animals, right? Like funny animals were the American yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. And it's just it's different. And like and it reflects in our in like what we find OK for adults to consume, like adults consuming Disney. We have no problem with. But like robot movies, we, we would sort of look askance. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like, look how little, like, track how much more money Pacific Rim 2 has made in other countries other than America. Like, here, barely registers a blip. Every other country, it did fine. You know, it, it's just, that's just how we, how we are, I guess. Yeah. Like, we, we, unless it's a Transformers movie, we don't give a shit for some reason. I don't fucking know why that is. It's just the way it is. I think robots are cool. Um, but I think they're fucking awesome as shit, personally. Yeah. But, um, 
I mean, I'm not. I'm no Elon Musk. Like, let's 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 be honest. I'm not. I'm not saying we should go. That ahead. fucking sucks. Shit. That the only guy who's gonna get a cool ass like you know Mac that looks like the the Death Scythe from Gundam Wing is this this fucking square pulsating like lazy eyed fucking vampire man. Ugh. He's the worst man. He sucks so much. He's so stupid. That's the thing. Like, he's clearly a fucking rube. Like, you just throw a Bugs Bunny wig on somebody and be like, oh, I'm sorry. Well, you know, I lost my checkbook. May I have yours? And he would fucking do it. You know? <laughs> well, I, what I like about Elon Musk is that you can basically sell him the plot of any anime for an investment pro- project. Like, if you were like, well, like, I, I, I'm the author of The Big O, the the Batman robot movie. Uh I, I always I just make fun of that because everyone says that the the guy from Big O is Bruce Wayne, but uh, yes, I think just because he's also, voiced by the same guy in the in the dub. No, that's a uh, uh, is that not him? No, the in the in Big O that's um oh god he's like done a million things I'm I'm so shitty for blanking on his name I've met him he's really nice oh Jesus Christ anyway anyway um, but yeah, I mean, like you could you could just sell him that. You could be like, I I you know I created the Big O, and he'd be like, Well, can I give you a billion dollars to give me one? I'm like, yeah, sure. The main problem with that is that there already is like a billionaire uh, uh, evil figure in the world of anime, and that's Palmer Lucky. Mm. He's kind of already got that thing locked down. Hmm, that's a shame. Yeah, he's the, he's going to be the one that like his girlfriend dumps him, and then he he's mad he can't immediately order another girlfriend online on tour, and then loads up his you know mech destroyer and cuts half of Palo Alto, you know. <laughs> so I mean, but like even even this kind of even this kind of discourse, right? Like the the idea of the the extremely rich billionaire antagonist, the 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 sort of like golden age uh unbelievable wealth of that's just like a casual plot line right like this is stuff that i think is like it's it's not in american plots nearly as much like this is a very japanese sort of uh uh narrative yeah i agree um there's a certain kind of liquidity that they they think of it um Mm. you know uh most Companies when they when they they get kind of antsy um, when they when they're sitting on large, large piles of money they tend to spend it. This is why Nintendo of all of them is uh, considered rather conservative in um, uh, or at least it was at the time uh, in in the, the kind of the NES Famicom era where, where Nintendo was just making you know untold billions of dollars every moment. Right, sure. Uh, they were they were considered very conservative by by. Uh, Japanese standards because they weren't they weren't spending the money that they were earning they were banking it they weren't doing anything with it they were just sitting on it I mean good for them because they basically uh, withstood the uh, the the dry years before the switch well not just those years they've withstood several at this point they withstood the N sixty four the GameCube the you know Wii U like they've the Virtual Boy like <laughs> all these failures they've sailed right through you know even ones that took years like the the Wii U is just the saddest thing you'd ever seen in your life you just look at it and you're like you oh, some poor Nintendo product guy is gonna lose his job and normally they they you're a Nintendo lifer but you're gonna get fired for this fuck up jeez <laughs> So would you say would you say like is Nintendo a very American company in that way or is that like No, they're very well they're very Japanese in their uh like it's been around for you know the 200 years or something like that right, you know sure. it, it's It's a very old company. A, yeah, it's been around since the modern restoration of Japan. 
you know, like before uh, the ports opened up and there was trading and all that stuff. Like it goes back to that era. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible to think about. And you can actually st- I, I'm so mad when I went to Japan a few years ago and I'm so mad I couldn't go to uh, the original Nintendo location, which is still there and still maintained. Nobody's there from what I understand. It's just a facade. But it's the same place where they made uh, what's called Hanafuda cards, which were just basically like Japanese version of playing cards. Yeah, that was uh, what they were. That was what they started with, right? That's what they started with and what they built their entire empire with. Wow. There were a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, the uh, uh, former pre- RAP, uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, who, by the way, should, if, if there's ever going to be this like cold, calculating, kind of unsettling biopic made about anybody in video games, it needs to be about Hiroshi Yamauchi. He was a grumpy, lustful, womanizing piece of shit. Just this sullen, angry man. He hated video games, hated everything about them. He only ever played one video game about Go. Actually, I believe that story is apocryphal, so take however much stock in it as you will. But (laughs) he was like a high-level Japanese Go champion, and he just considered everything intellectually beneath him. Before the company kind of stumbled upon video games to make their fortune, like he tried all kinds of shit, got into toys, got into direct marketing, opened up a chain of love hotels, which are basically just, you know, salarymen pick up prostitutes and fuck them and then leave for an hourly rate. He started a chain of those to use himself. (laughs) (laughs) That's why he did it? Yes, exactly why he did it. That's really good. (laughs) And everybody in the company knew, and they were just like, oh, Hiroshi. (laughs) And then finally he made Famicom? Finally he stumbled upon, well, what happened is he, he stumbled into toys. He had an engineer. Mm. He had an engineer named Gunpei Yokoi who was on his assembly line making, you know, God knows what uh, Hanafuda product that the company was making. And he fashioned himself this little extendable arm just on his free time. Okay. Um, and uh, I believe Yamachi was like, hey, that's really cool. Make that. Let, let's sell that as a product. <laughs> and so they made it and they sold it and it was a huge toy hit. Like it was the Teddy Ruxpin of the year in Japan, apparently. You know, really? Sold out everywhere. Yeah. And Gunpei Yokoi made a bunch of toys for um, Nintendo before they kind of stumbled upon video games. There's a really cool one, if everyone, anyone wants to look it up. It's called an Elekonga. Elekonga. Like electronic conga. It's a little, uh, I think it's one conga drum. It's basically like a Simon game, but you actually like tap it um, on different uh, parts of the, the drum and like different lights up and stuff. It's really neat. Wow, really that's cool. really cool. Yeah, he, he made a ton of cool toys. And he's the guy who, who eventually went on to make uh, Game Boy. That oh, was, okay. Uh, wow. That was him. Talented yeah, he, man. Uh, he, yeah, absurdly talented man. Then he made the Virtual Boy, and Nintendo punished him and exiled him. Really? Yeah, actually, really sad story about that guy. So he yeah, made the Virtual Boy, despite telling Nintendo constantly, like, this is a prototype, this is just us fucking around, don't release this. But the N64 kept getting delayed, and so there was pressure to just, like, get a new product on store shelves. didn't matter what it was, you know? Right, So sure. they they... Na- you know, narrowed in on the Virtual Boy because they were just like, oh, we'll call it Blank Boy because it's the Game Boy designer. Right, and also everyone saw Virtual and was like, yes, give me that right now. I want to I yeah, people, play that. People like bemoaned the VR kind of uh, money burn that happened a few years ago, you know, just like people investing hundreds of millions of dollars into VR, not really expecting it to pay off, and it didn't. <laughs> but, yeah, of course. Uh, they did the same thing in the mid-90s, the exactly the same thing. Around the time the movie Lawnmower Man came out, everyone's like, VR's the future. we got to get into VR. <laughs> I remember so, that. You could, you could play VR at Dave & Buster's. 
Do you remember, uh, speaking of video game magazines, remember reading about the Sega VR? No. I don't. I, VR that's thing. amazing. I do Genesis. not know that. They, Sega made a VR system for the Genesis. They never released it because a doctor came to them and was just like, yeah, this shit's going to make all kids sick. <laughs> they basically, they just made the, um, so that all they did was make the, uh, the masks from, uh, from Halloween three. Basically. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> Got, That's a shame. Uh, puts, yeah. Put Sega in the, the silver shamrock song or whatever. Yeah. Right. Wow. Sega shamrock. <laughs> Jeez, that's like that's that's a that's a shame. Like that's that's I never knew that history of the Virtual Boy. I never knew. Wow. Yeah, the deeper you go into these companies, like the the thing about Nintendo is Nintendo has this R and D department that's just constantly making shit. Mm-hmm. Like all this, all the systems and things that that eventually get released come from their R and D divisions, just like fucking around the switch came from that the the wii came from that the wii was originally like somebody fucking around with a gamecube trying to think of a new controller and they were just like oh this is good let's just make this a new product wow um but and, like they have usually they don't punish that. you for that or but or like but if it's a, a terrible failure you have to leave basically like everyone makes fun of that stupid vitality sensor remember the vitality sensor yes yeah that was another r&d thing that like they were like oh this is going to be great this is awesome and then eventually cooler heads prevailed and they were just like this is fucking stupid <laughs> why right. are we gonna release this but someone got fired for it i hope not oh, nintendo yeah. like i don't know the thing about nintendo and really most japanese companies is that like you're you can move around but like once you're there you're there for life i remember hmm. a story about um i was listening to uh, uh so there's uh by the way if anyone wants to go into the weeds about like old japanese games listen to a podcast called retro knots um yeah do it that's uh fantastic resource they go really into the weeds and uh the host of that show was talking about how uh, he went to the the japanese namco bandai headquarters uh cool. like the their current headquarters you know and, and he wanted to talk to the guy who made the the arcade game rolling thunder do you remember rolling thunder i do yeah that game is fucking awesome right yeah it's great yeah uh sega ripped it off to make shinobi <laughs> um no that's okay i mean <laughs> no why not good. it's great <laughs> They're both they both kick ass, and uh, he kept being politely turned down until eventually somebody had to like politely say to him like the, the guy who made Rolling Thunder is like a high level executive at the company. <laughs> He's not going to talk to you about Rolling Thunder. <laughs> that sucks, but I mean it's funny. I, like I'm glad that he got a promotion. I don't know. Like it's it, it's really hard for me to to balance a lot of this out, right? Like there's this feeling that I have where. Culturally, I'm really happy that they keep getting promoted and stuff. And then on the other hand, it's like there's that level of they're not really doing a lot of the a lot of this stuff is sort of trivial, right? Like a lot of this is about making profits, but it's not like they're super interested or invested in like the art of their craft or something like that. Like the guy who made Rolling Thunder is probably like much happier being an executive than he was a designer. Right. Yeah. And and he's now concerned with just like, you know, making sure that the, the company's latest mobile game hits its profits. Right. That's that's his life. And that's that's actually the life of, of most most Japanese developers now are on mobile because that's the only way you turn a profit. That's it's not just sure. the same here. Literally every country in the world. If you're not making mobile games, you're you're just literally just pissing money away and you're stupid. <laughs> no, I mean, that's like, I've, I've heard that before. Like, it, and I mean, it's like, it's you know, prior to Fortnite, prior to anything, like all the, uh, you know, any sort of trend these days, 
is mobile. I mean, like before before you even get to any of them, it's like, well, it, yeah. do you have a mobile version? Can you do mobile? It's like, yeah, I guess yeah. that makes sense. People love being on their phone. Yeah, and uh, releasing like console video games, even PC video games, is considered just this this niche market, like this this dumb pool for the you know hardcore nerds to wallow around in. Hmm. Um, but it's been really cool in the past year specifically. Uh, to see a lot of Japanese video games break through somehow the kind of mainstream uh, uh, AT field. <laughs> if I use another anime <laughs> reference, that's good. That, like uh, American audiences put it is on things terror, that I would say that yeah, like yeah, these these feels that they put on things that they're not exactly explicitly familiar with, or like they they think it's weird that people just have this 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 cultural image of what Japanese games are, and like some of that's true, but a lot of their fears are uh, over overblown. Yeah, you know, sure. like it's not quite as stupid as as you think. It's it's it could be actually quite uplifting, and then other times it is precisely as stupid as you think it is. But that's okay. <laughs> um, but sometimes that stupidness comes from like the fact that you're piloting a giant badass robot and setting things on fire, and that ca- the, it fucking rules. Right. Um, right. Uh, well, like the the Yakuza games, I, I think are fantastic at that. And I'm uh, I played a little bit of six. If you haven't yet, it's it's amazing how good that game is. I really have considering to. it's yeah. As soon as I learned you could talk to uh, cam girls in that game, that was the first thing I did. Like, I, I've not done a single story mission in Yakuza 6. I've just fucked around for about two hours just, like, doing, uh, you know, saving a bowling alley or whatever the fuck. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right. so fun. Well, yeah, I mean, that's all that, like, that's what those games are for in a lot of ways. They're just for, like, fun role-playing of life. Like, they're, well, like the- I mean, I, I know they're not really that. They're a Grand Theft Auto sort of thing, but at the same point, they're kind of not, <laughs> And well, no, that was actually that was the mistake they made with the first game. They marketed it like a Grand Theft Auto game, even mm-hmm. though that's not what it is. It's kind of like they took the good parts of Shenmue and pared it down, and right. you know, put a shitload of story in it, and paid Michael Madsen a million dollars. That's <laughs> that's how so, uh, Sega marketed the first Yakuza. It didn't work. No. Yeah, I mean, like it's 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 basically I don't know. Like the the, the cool thing about seeing uh, Japanese video games break through is that there is a sensibility in them that is very refreshing. Like I'm thinking of, you know, there's depressing ones. Like there's Near Automata, um, which is a very Japanese game. But you're right, there's Yakuza, and there's even sort of like the goofy ones that were more so breaking through in the Nintendo era. But like you still see it. Like there's there are goofy sort of like games on the Nintendo, like the Mario versus Rabbids or whatever. Right, like there's a sense of humor about it. There's a sense of like uh, that was Ubisoft. That was oh, not uh, made in sorry, Japan. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, it was licensed by a Japanese company. Well, uh, that's all I meant. Nintendo, and, you know. Julian, take this out. No one must know my mistake. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I can't it's, hear my awesome nerd's voice. Well, okay, yeah, they'll keep it in. Um, but yeah, no, it's it, it's just interesting. So uh, tell me about this. Like, so what? When did this end? Like, I mean, this this. The 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 train ended for America, uh, obviously. Um, did the train end for Japan? Like, is it still as like incredibly uh, wealthy there? I don't think so, but uh, you no. you know more than me. Uh, they are they are they are dealing with exactly the same uh, sense of anxiety and uh, flux. You know, th- this feeling of just like something's not quite right. right. We don't know what it is yet as a culture. But something's a little off. So we're going to place our anxieties in all these weird ways <laughs> that will manifest themselves in really bizarre 
fashions that aren't healthy. I don't think they have it nearly as bad as we do. But, um, you know, it's a global issue right. and they're dealing with it in, in, in all the same ways that they are. That's that's why the, the Konami blow up with Kojima was considered, you know, like because that got picked up in Western press. If that never got picked up, like that would have been a non story, you know. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Japanese well, would... press just don't talk out of school like that. They just don't do that. You know. Well, and I mean, it's just like it's such a. Yeah. OK. No, that makes sense. So there's actually like they wouldn't they wouldn't have it even reported on it it wouldn't be a non-story because there was no interest it's just like it would have been a non-story because there wouldn't have been reporting on it. it it probably would have been reported on but like it not to uh not not to the same degree where there was like a public display at the what was it the game awards or wherever oh yeah where uh the, the dorito man i forget his name um <laughs> Uh, Dorito man. Jeff Keeley, there we go. The Dorito man. He's he's in that picture with like all the Mountain Dews and the Doritos. It seems like when you say he's in the picture with the Mountain Dews and the Doritos, I just think it's like the uh, the picture from The Shining. Um, no, it basically it's really creepy. Like it was a promotional shot that he was doing with whatever like IGN or some website he was with with Mountain Dew and Doritos, and he's just sitting there in like a chair with like a green screen background, with just this fucking pyramid of Mountain Dew and Doritos behind him and he just looks so sad. <laughs> he looks like he wants he wants the pyramid of shit to kill him. It's so depressing. That's rough. But he, yeah, but he's the one who who called out publicly like it's a shame that they won't let Konami won't let Kojima on stage to receive an award for his unfinished game, you know. He kind of led that charge. So I wow. guess it's not all bad. Well, I mean, yeah, probably not. So so when it ended, uh, it ended. I'm, I'm just assuming it ended in the same way that all of us ended, which is to say, with the sort of like global crisis and capital. Um, yep. So what happened? How did this affect this? Like, so what you're describing is like this this Veblen-esque consumption, but like in an imaginary, in in sort of like a creative sense that, of course, is about capital accumulation. It's about making money, but it's also like it, it is this sense of like we're going to make money by like just spending it in the weirdest ways possible. Um, it, it's a very sort of like creative destruction sort of uh, approach. Yeah. Well, and, and the what other happens? thing to point oh, out, good. well, and the other thing to, to keep in mind too is isn't just the, the economic collapse. People forget like a, not even a decade ago, the, the country suffered a devastating earthquake. Right. And, uh, you know, tidal waves that, that killed countless people and, and caused untold amounts of money of destruction and the the country is still very much like dealing grappling with with that reality as well as the climate's changing and maybe not in ways that are necessarily good if you're an island nation you know like there's a right. lot of anxiety mm-hmm. there uh culturally that manifests itself in in you know ways that are evident and obvious and ways that are uh, more restrained or subtle or, or difficult to pick up on if you're you know from western eyes unless you, you're constantly tuned in you know right so uh, is, what would be like so you are constantly tuned in what would be one of the what would be one of the ways that you 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 would identify like, is there any particular like, is there any particular way that you feel is like most representative of of that shift? Uh, well, I think just in general, a lot of the um, uh, most of the most of the, the the game development is really interesting right now uh, because you're seeing a lot more faith being put into individual personalities uh, on the on the Japanese development side that didn't really happen before. Um, oh yeah, or sure. at the very least, like they're they're given more opportunities. Like uh, 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 Swery, 
who made Deadly Premonition, which is an awesome Japanese game. Great game. It is super weird and terrible. Well, it's, a twin, <laughs> really. it's a Twin Peaks love story, though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it. yeah, again, like Twin Peaks, very popular in Japan. Um, yeah, uh, Twin Peaks love story has kind of the same lumpiness to it, where it's like not really, it's a little odd. And if you're not, if you're not hip to it immediately, like it's, it's, it's a chore. But if you're, if you're on board with it, it's fucking awesome. It's super cool. And there, so he just, he just had a Kickstarter game that he, that he, uh, uh, released. I or, donated or to it. I was it. I was there for it. Yep. Yeah, it looks wild. I, I'm not even going to begin to try to tell you what the fuck the game is about. I know there's cats in like a, a city. I don't know. Yeah, it's like it's a it's a it's a game where you're in a in a town that's it's a debt simulator. That's how he that's how he. And I mean, of course, yeah. he sold me immediately when he said that. That's cool. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's yeah, sweary sweary is a good example. Um, but there's a lot of them. I'm like just, uh, like uh, what's his name? Um, Suda. Yep, Suda, same deal. He's he's working on his Switch game and and God knows what else. Like he he's being given a lot more leeway as far as uh, the content of his game, or at least he was. Like I think I think once Bethesda gave him money and his game wasn't a hit, I think <laughs> I think the spigot for the money stopped a little bit. What but, was the Bethesda game that he made? Uh, Killer is Dead, I believe. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was Bethesda was attached to that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty good. If you can get it cheap on Steam, it's really cool. It's yeah. not very long, but it's it's pretty good. No, it's a neat game. Um, it's, it's aesthetically pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. Kind of takes like the the style he was going with with Killer Seven and No More mm-hmm. Heroes, kind of to its like at the time next gen most beautiful uh, conclusion. It's very cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Sweary, Suda, obviously uh, Kojima, Yokotaro. Like the, these are these are kind of being built up as uh, this new kind of generation of really interesting Japanese auteurs who are given platforms uh, to to speak honestly and, and freely about uh, you know their thoughts on on development and, and art and and all this stuff, especially from the Western media, who've kind of clued into the fact that like oh these guys are kind of like weird and interesting and and fun like. You know, they're a little less concerned with their, their PR managers at their companies because they're, you know, a bit more free hmm. uh, to kind of talk about the process a little bit. And I hope, I hope more of that kind of spills out and we see, we see um, not just indie games, but like, uh, you know, a real kind of auteur-driven, I guess, movement from, from a lot of these people who've been in the trenches of development for, you know, like I said, dating back to when they were just dropping off floppy disks and... Oh, yeah. I mean, Suda's first writing. I mean, it was actually the first interview I had in the show. I had Alex Navarro on uh, well before I should have because uh, now I should have him back on because like three people listen to it. But um, <laughs> I had Alex on uh, to talk about uh, Fire Pro. We talked about Suda's Fire Pro, yeah. which was like I was amazed to find out it was Suda. I was amazed to find out all about it. And it's like, yeah, human, it's really human cool. is like it's wild. human entertainment is fucking crazy the the work that they did that and uh the company that made fire pro by the way did you ever play the original uh nintendo nes uh, pro wrestling game yes that the, the developers on that game became human entertainment and they made fire pro wrestling because they were like we want to keep doing wrestling games i mean fire pro is fantastic and like i i was yeah, I, had, I had no idea about like i knew about like uh the playstation fire pros and stuff like that but i had no idea about suda's story in it and it just like it blew my mind when I was talking to Alex about it. I was like, "This is, this is insane! Like, how did how did this get published?" And you're right. Yeah. I mean, like, it's basically like now they're leaning into it. Yeah, you can download on PS4 and Steam an English translated HD version of a PS1 adventure game that Suda directed for I don't know some fucking publisher like Marvelous Entertainment or you know somebody that's like barely around anymore. 
that was like just is that silver case? games in the 90s yeah silver case yeah you can get that that's an old playstation yeah. one game that was like untranslated from japan from like 1995 you can get that now that's absurd yeah no and i mean it's it, it, it's clear that they're sort of like it's it's a different sort of i, I you know i never would have i really like i, I think that's fascinating because i never would have tied that back into the drop in the the economy because of course like when you have a sort of like boom economy, it's always forward, forward, forward. And, and, but like the the sort of like focus on great, like a great auteur sort of theory in Japan, I mean that also like makes you look backward. And they're they're sort of like building a canon now, which I mean, yeah, it generally happens when you don't have as much money. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the whole movie, the whole reason the movie Akira exists is because Bandai had too much money. They had too much money and they wanted a prestige film. They just thought they could they could buy their way into making a prestige film. And they kind of did. Yeah, they no, only that's... got that because they just gave, you know, they gave him all the money in the world and let him go. And when they got the result back, they were like, all right, I guess this is what we have. <laughs> you know, I guess this is what we asked for. Uh, yeah, I guess this is well, this is what we got to sell to people. Let's do the best job we can somehow. You know, right. I, it wasn't it successful at the time, but like obviously, you put something like that out in the world that's that striking, that's that unique. Eventually, the personal opinion is going to come around, and word of mouth is going to spread, uh, and oh, it's going to be favorable. You know, it'll last forever. That movie will never go away. It will last for a million lifetimes for as long as there are eyeballs to watch movies. You know, yeah, and I absolutely. feel the same way about a lot of uh, Japanese video games too, because not only were they just like instrumental, just in the sheer kind of experimental nature uh, that they were, they were pioneering with the, the Famicom and all that stuff, but also just the, the, the very unique sensibilities that they give to these, th their current games that are obviously like layers upon layers more complex. Like Nier Automata is a fantastic example of all, all of these different ideas coalescing into something that shouldn't work. And it almost doesn't, but it, does somehow and like the way it does it is really unique and interesting as far as how it uh, how it relates to being a video game that well, there like how yeah. it, there's multiple endings that play on each other and they play on each other because you've seen the ones before because that's what how video games work it's just a really interesting mechanical way to approach the the storytelling in these games rather than being super linear and super concerned with you know, the, the canon and the lore, it's to, to kind of break that open and be a little more nonlinear and, and seeing where that goes. And in that game, I think it, it's really cool. It doesn't always land, but it's, you're always kind of like, well, that's neat. No one does this. Well, and it's I mean, neat. it's, it's so cool because the, the, I mean, the other element of it is that like you, you end up with, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. You end up with a, you end up with a way of like rereading past failures, which like, I mean, not that it was a Japanese failure entirely. It actually picked up steam there, but like Drakengard, right? Like no one cared about, uh, I think a Drakengard, right? Like that was the, that was the first game that sort of like spurred on the second mm -hmm. game, which spurred on the third, which one of the endings was yeah. near. And then there yeah. was near, which was unsuccessful. And like all those games are very unsuccessful in America, but like, now that we have near Automata, you can look back at them and say, like, oh, actually, there's a way of reading those that well, actually makes them very successful. Near actually was uh, was one of those games where it wasn't successful at first, mm -hmm. but then word of mouth spread, and then uh, it ended up getting reprinted. Oh. And for uh, uh, like a console video game, getting reprinted is like a sh like you're you're in cult status there, baby. Yeah, like, that's a big deal. Yeah, because like that means the so the printing presses are still on for like PS3 games, even PS2 games. You can still 
fire up a machine to like manufacture a brand new PS2 game in the year of 2018. Wow. Those factories are still around. Um, and they will still make these games if there's enough demand because they have the, the molds ready, they have the artwork ready, they just got to you know hit the, hit the switch on the magic robot uh, box maker machine, you know? Uh, and Nier was one of those games that I think got reprinted several times. Interesting. I didn't know that. Might actually be due for another one. I yeah, actually, I, I wouldn't be surprised, basically, if they, if they decided to reprint it again. Um, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So um, I had another question. Uh, what was my question? This is all super interesting to me. Um, I don't know if I have another question. Uh, tell me a little bit about, so like, here's a good way to segue in case I do have that other question and it comes to my mind. I usually don't forget them, but this was all like, you, it kind of sparked a lot of thoughts here. Um, tell me a little bit about the, uh, like a game that you feel. So do, we talked about Doki Doki. We talked about, I'm sorry, uh, all this stuff, right? Well, uh, we talked about, I'm sorry. We talked, God damn it. We talked about, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about like one of your, one of the games that like really kind of like um, triggers a, a, a sense of this era to uh, to you, like the sense the sense of the era of just like complete and total consumerism, complete and total uh, you know lack of scarcity. Like, what what is a game that like speaks to you that about that era? Uh, the, my favorite example for that is um, uh, the Japan or um, the Mega Drive game, Genesis game, um, Ronald McDonald's Treasure Land Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's this pretty good two D platformer made by Treasure. Uh, the developer's treasure, if anyone's familiar. Yeah. Um, they made it. Gunstar Heroes. They made Ikaruga. Um, bunch of cool shoot-em-ups and, like, a hardcore uh, uh, Japanese, like, role-playing. Well, they didn't really do role-playing games. Like, action games. Action games were their big thing. Uh, like, they were a splinter group from... Uh, they left Konami, I think, after Contra 4, um, just to kind of do their own thing. And, and Sega paid them money to make games. And Dynamite Heady was another great game they did. But the first game they ever made was a licensed McDonald's game. And it's just this game where you are Ronald McDonald and you have a little uh, rope that shoots out of your arm and you jump up ledges and collect rubies and diamonds and jump on snails. <laughs> and there's wow. no reason for it to exist as a blatant commercial as good as it is. You know what I mean? Like this, these were ex like Konami's top developers making this shitty licensed <laughs> McDonald's game that like in America or Europe, they would have farmed out for pennies, right. you know, to some grunt developer to do in a weekend. Um, wow. But somehow this amazingly talented crew of people got to make this McDonald land game. And it's pretty good. It's pretty fun. The music's great too. Is, I mean, is that like, is that a, so like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask a, ask a question that I, I don't want it to seem insincere or uh, offensive, but like, you know, the Japanese people get the sort of get painted with a broad brush uh, fairly often, of course. Um, and one of the ways that they get painted with a broad brush is that they are obsessed with perfection. Like they are a they are like a, a society that is obsessed with the idea of, you know, succeeding and and producing like a perfect piece. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, is that what's going on here or is there some sort of uh, is that a stereotype and there's something else completely going on? There is no shortage of Japanese games that are absolutely fucking dire. There's there, it's a whole genre. It's called uh, kusoge, <clears throat> short for uh, kuso game, uh, which literally just means shit game. There's a, a huge, <laughs> huge uh, genre of of kusoge, and like if you go to any like used Japanese game store in 
like Akihabara or Osaka, like, you know, Super Potato, any of the, the major places, they have, they, they will typically have like a section dedicated to Kusoge and you can actually sit down and like play one of their, their choice uh, Kusoge. It's usually like a game called Super Monkey Daiboken, <clears throat> which is like this game where you just walk across the screen for about 20 minutes and hope that something, you, you land on the right tile to make something happen. <laughs> if not, you have to walk another 20 minutes. Sounds uh, awful. Uh, Spelunker is another uh, Kusoge that they love. It's just this, you know, dumb little uh, computer game where if you fall approximately two pixels, you die. Um, <laughs> so uh, what's what's the what's the deal there? Are they just like that they're bad? No, I I, I think it, like anything else, it just kind of depends on it depends on a lot of the personalities involved. And I think in the instance that I mentioned with Treasure, like they're a new company and they want to you know knock it out of the park with their first contract gig i guess but i think it's always more comp- like as with anything like it's it's a bit more complicated than just like oh as a society they're more obsessed with you know maintaining perfection i think it's uh, you, you will find plenty of examples of absolute phoning it in laziness no matter where you are that's what i figured it seems like it seems like it would be it would be remarkable if like that stereotype were 100 percent true um because people are lazy um and that's good like we should be allowed to be lazy. Yeah, have you played that like really shitty Ghosts and Goblins uh, port to the NES lately? That game fucking sucks shit. Runs like shit. Runs at like twenty frames a second. Yeah, Ghosts and Goblins. Nothing's is rough. right. It's fucking piece of crap. Mike, it was a company called Micronics, and it, like nobody knows who Micronics is or who's ever worked for them. Like they're they're a ghost company, but they were hired by Konami to make that port, and it was probably made by like you know one very tired man over the <laughs> course of like a month. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he created a cult classic. Give him that. It still lives on. You know, I, I hope that whatever gruel he was paid in to, you know, sweat that out in a garage was <laughs> was worth the pain. So, um, Brian, this has been great. Like, I, I've learned a lot, which is not always the case. Um, I always I always feel like I've, I've discussed good stuff with my guests, but I don't always learn something. So that was uh, that's really very much appreciated. Um, Thank you. That's all I know. I know nothing else than that. I uh, got it all in and under uh, however long we've been recording. Well, That's good, because um, I was going to ask if you had anything else to say. And if you did, I was going to kick you off the show. Um, no. Now, did, uh, anything else to add, though? Anything you think we missed? Uh, no, I think everyone should just uh, play I'm Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to play I'm Sorry. Uh, it's not bad. It's pretty fun. <laughs> we talked about I'm Sorry. Yeah, you yeah, remember to punch you, you can punch through the the golden gates to get the gold. Uh remember that. And you can punch the bad guys too. Just be careful because I think uh, Michael Jackson has a whip, mm. I think. Oh, you know what? I sure. I did think of my last question. Uh, I uh, I'm I'm off my game. I'm sorry. Um No worries. But this so I get the last word. This is rare. Um so one of the things that I I, I was thinking of when uh when we were talking about uh the ways that Japan sort of like has grappled with uh the crisis in modernity. Um I was thinking recently about um, uh, Om, Om Shinrikyo, uh, the the sort of death as cult. you do, yeah. Well, no, as I yeah, like you know, uh, sometimes they come to mind. Um, he was into edging. Does everyone know that? Like the Om Shinrikyo guy yeah. was really into edging. Well, yeah, he was into a lot of stuff. He was into uh, he could make himself levitate by uh, flexing his thigh muscles really hard. Yeah, because it was because he didn't come. Right. Yeah, he's a weird dude, uh, Shoko Asahara. Very strange guy. Got um, so close to owning nuclear weapons. Isn't that crazy? He, he got so close hairs. to owning actual nuclear weapons. He was close to killing tens of thousands of people with that sarin gas attack. Yeah, we all lucked out. Like, yeah. They was, messed up just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
But like, yeah, if they had just cut down on the acid a little bit, I'm sure they would have done a higher body count. Just saying. They couldn't cut down on the acid. That was part of the whole thing. Anyway, exactly. there's a really good four-part series on Ocean Rikyo that uh, Last Podcast on the Left put out if, you, uh, if you're interested in, in hearing people smarter than me talk about it. Uh, but it's good. Like, it's super interesting. But the, the reason I ask about them is because um, – so Asahara was like able to bring in a lot of his uh, followers, from what I'm to understand, uh, from like – you know, n- nerd uh, otaku like um, uh, venues. So like he brought them in via Twilight Zone magazine or anime or manga, right? Um, yeah, he made and there's there's uh, Amshin Rikyo anime by the way. Have it you exists. seen it? It's on YouTube. Yeah, of course. Is it good? Uh, no, it's creepy as shit and badly done. But you know, whatever. Well, that's a shame. I was really he hoping the best it was with like the budget they had. You know, I was really hoping it was like uh, uncharacteristically good. Like you would have to recommend like Studio it. Ghibli level production <laughs> values for this Amshin Rikyo video, just like. You know, like spirited away, but instead of like her riding on like a, a, a giant pig balloon, it's just like shitload giant tabs of acid dancing around, <laughs> you know, and everybody in diapers shitting themselves and sleeping two hours a day. I really like I just kind of like it, 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 this is an, this is unfair because you're you're already put upon enough or were put upon enough as an anime critic. But like I, I kind of want a thing to exist where like anime critics have to be like, look, I know it has a lot of baggage, but you guys got to watch the. The Om Shinriku anime. It's too good to, to ignore. Just don't. It's, a cl- it's an un- underrepresented gem. Uh, <laughs> if you look at uh, literally everything that's come um, uh, since, uh, I believe Miyazaki has given it a shout out at his Annie Awards acceptance speech. <laughs> uh, but like, so Om Shinriku like pulled from that and pulled from the fact that uh, post-World War II state Shinto was like just like not a thing anymore uh, once, once the emperor gave up his god title. Um so, like, all sorts of interesting stuff there. I yeah, mean, we did, we basically destroyed Japan's religion. Think about that. Yeah. That's fucking weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take the Mersbo stance that, like, uh, that basically, like, uh, all the all of Mersbo's noise and violence and, and stuff, he basically says, like, well, this is the Japan psyche after the atom bomb. And it's like, well, that's too on the nose to not be true. I trust yeah, it's one of those things. It's one of those things where you're just like, well, it was kind of the most like at the time singularly destructive human event in human history. I guess we just got to shrug and be like, yeah, sure. OK, sorry. <laughs> right. I mean, it, I, it, in all seriousness, just like an absolutely atrocious thing that we did and uh, and um, clearly like fractured quite a bit of, uh, of of Japanese society, as it would if you dropped a bomb anywhere. Um so in any case, State Shinto was gone, um, and as a result, these cults sort of took up practice. But I wonder, like, do you think that the the sort of, like, heady consumerism and then the fall from the heady consumerism that we saw in video games, the idea of, like, total optimism for the future or, like, total just production, 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 even on, like, the smallest thing, spending all the money you had, and then the crash. I mean, you could chart Om Shinrikyo's rise and fall to that as well. Do you think that, like, sort of, like sense of optimism and then pessimism that that sort of like religious fervor ends up in video games as well. Or is it like, is it sort of a, a like a, uh, is it sort of a replacement for something that isn't religious? That's something different. I, you know, I'm, I'm loath to kind of give it any sort of classification because like I, I wasn't, I wasn't a Japanese boy, you know, growing right. up in the 80s. Oh yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's really so, important. Yeah. We're, we're speaking as total outsiders. So that's, like, yeah, that's just, absolutely uh, important to remember. All I can really relate to is, like, uh, I I can picture myself as a young Japanese lad watching Dragon Ball in 1986 and being like, well, this is a delightful cartoon. You know, like, uh, th- that's that's about all I personally can, can relate to it with. But I... Um, uh, 
I can only imagine that the Japanese society is very overwhelming, <laughs> just based on my own time there. Um, uh, I, I don't know. As far as the way it manifests itself in 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 games and and in the games that they made, which were uh, had an outsized influence on the world's games for you know well, the entire '90s and most of the '80s. You know, I mean, even still, um, in a lot of ways, still today, like the, people are still making fighting games, which is so wild to me because like you can uh, like the the idea of a Western company spending money on like Mortal Kombat or Injustice or anything like that. I'm just like you have the the budgets that most of these these fighting game developers have is like laughable. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like they're making these things out of tin cans and string. Like and there's still a market for it is 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 wild. It's but, amazing. Yeah, um, uh, I think it's just how it shook out. Like nobody could have predicted it necessarily. It's just uh, there was just this overwhelming market for it. Like there was never a, a cap on it. You know, like mm-hmm. the, Nintendo put a cap on how many NES games you could release a year. It was five. You could only release five NES games a year. That's fascinating. They didn't have per that company or yeah. just like all around per company. Like Nintendo oh, per okay. company. Nintendo wow. obviously could do whatever the fuck they wanted. Yeah, well, I guess but, that makes sense, right? Yeah, you uh, you could only release five games a year, and you had to order all the cartridges from Nintendo. You couldn't manufacture your own cartridges. You ordered all that from Nintendo, and you could only order typically around, I think the order number was like 10,000 to 40,000, uh, 40, and that was it. Wow. Yeah. That's and, small. Yeah, not very many. But, of course, this was at a time where... Like you just look back at certain times in in gaming's history where you're just like it doesn't matter what the game is you just put a box on a shelf and and label it a game PS2 people will buy it right doesn't matter what yeah you know and the Famicom and the NES were exactly that like if you if you had an NES or Famicom game on a store shelves in the late 80s to early 90s you were a millionaire you know like it didn't matter people just bought it so. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of those things stem from just that that fervor, that demand to just have products on the shelf, um, and and some of those you know obviously showed very wildly differing ideas of what a game could be because that those rules weren't set down yet, you know it, the, there was just a need for product on the shelf so nobody cared like, again like it didn't matter what it was as long as it was there, yeah, well I mean it's sort of like it's the problem of um, just like like you know the I played I played the Rescue Rangers game a lot as a kid because like it was a platformer that you could play. It wasn't impossible, and my friends had it. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, and that's just not a reality for people anymore. So I guess that, yeah, but like that imagine your imagine your Konami, and it's 1987 or 88, and you have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game coming out, and you can only order forty thousand copies when you know you could sell two million of them. Oh, that <laughs> like, must be imagine brutal. how pissed off you are. Yeah. Uh, of course, and but you there you're playing with the only game in town. Yeah, it's the only place you can get them. Japan, they didn't have that. Um, well, at first, uh, at first uh, you could manufacture your own cartridges. In fact, Namco did. Uh, if you look at early Namco Famicom cartridges, they look completely different than any other Famicom cartridges because they got to make their own. Yeah, those are weird. I actually molds. think about Namco ones. With, uh, I wanna, I'm trying to remember one like Xeno. Xenophobia, I think, so it was one of them that, like, I just like a dumb game that I picked up at a Blockbuster one time. It yeah, wasn't... Tengen. That was Tengen. Yeah, it was uh, Tengen oh, yeah. in the U.S. was a collaboration between Atari Games and Namco. Oh, okay. Because uh, they had, like, these, these kind of deep ties from the, you know, the Atari era and Pac-Man era and all that stuff. Uh, so uh, when Nintendo told Namco in Japan that they couldn't manufacture their own Famicom cartridges anymore, Namco was pissed off. They actually went to Nintendo uh, expecting that they'd just 
extend their contract for however long and that their royalties would remain the same. And Nintendo was like, no, you have to play by all the same rules as everyone else now. Uh, everybody's making millions, but like, no, you, you don't get, you don't get a deal. You don't get to make your own cartridges. You, you pay us the same royalties and Namco obviously furious at this. So they, they, they invested into Tengen and they convinced Tengen to publish NES games, manufacture their own cartridges and build a workaround to the original NES that got around the lockout chip that prevented (laughs) licensed software. They got that very unle- illegally. They walked up to a patent office, told the patent officer that they were suing Nintendo for some sort of patent infringement, walked out with the patent for the lockout chip, copied it, returned it. There was no such lawsuit until <laughs> Nintendo sued them for stealing intellectual property. And won, I bet. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Well, now, that, that Tengen Tetris game you can't find anymore because of all that. Interesting. Well, so... We have, I think we've, we've covered it all. Um, I don't want to keep any longer. Brian, this was really excellent. Thank you so much. Come back anytime. I'd love to talk more about the history of video games with you. This has been great. Not a problem. Follow me on Twitter, by the way. Yeah. I'm at Brian Hansen, underscore Hansen, I think. Oh, and uh, my, my friend Alec, uh, Alec Robbins, he just had a game come out on Steam called Heartbreak High. So buy that. Yeah, me a key we yet. were chatting about that. I, he, gave me a, he gave me an early sample. It, it looks great. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, kids, kids, good. Got a good head on his shoulders. It's a cool idea. It's basically like a dating simulator, but in reverse. Yeah, it's definitely a neat idea. Like, obviously, Alex, another weeb infested with the brain maggots that uh, causes you to like Japanese stuff. So, you know. Well, I like. I, I'm. I'm more sympathetic in to say I'm more sympathetic because I played more than I've watched anime of uh, visual novels. So I'm looking forward to Alex's work. Uh, definitely check it out. Heartbreak High. Um, I'll do an episode on it pretty soon. So, um, yeah, man. So yeah, follow Brian. Look for his work. Um, I'm sure. You know your tweets are good enough. Uh, your tweets. Your no, tweets they're not. Are but thank enough. you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, yeah. Please come back again. This was this was a blast. Absolutely, man. All right. Talk to you soon. You too, dude.